Thanks for joining us again here in The Undertow. This is the podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Tonight, this is uh, episode number 10 of The Undertow podcast, where we are focusing on Kill or Be Killed number 6, which is the latest issue um, of the ongoing Brubaker and Phillips book. This is Robert, as always. Uh, happy to be joining you here with uh, my co-host, Bubba Beasley. How's everybody doing? Very happy to be here. As always, you can find our episodes at undertow.podbean.com. You can listen in on iTunes. All the episodes should be posted there. Um, you can send us an email, undertowpodcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at undertowpodcast. Um, did want to read out, we had a couple iTunes reviews come through this month, and we definitely appreciated that. So I was going to uh, read through those on air here. We just have a couple. Um, again, we always appreciate people doing that. If you have a second, go ahead, give us a rating, give us some feedback, good or bad. Um, definitely this is a, a niche podcast for a niche audience, but, um, we're always trying to expand that and an iTunes review definitely helps us do that. So, uh, anyway, uh, we had a couple of reviews come in. It looks like, um, we had one, uh, last year here, f- several months back, Derek Burke left us a, a five-star review and said, I've been hoping for a podcast about my favorite comics creative team of Brubaker and Phillips. And here it is. If you enjoy their work, you'll enjoy this podcast. Looking forward to more episodes. So thanks for that, Derek. Uh, Dense Bryce also left a review here this month. Um, it said, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips may be the best writer-artist team in modern comics, and this podcast does a great job delving into their entire body of work. The host's banter is fantastic. These guys know their stuff. So uh, thanks for that. Yeah, we'll try, to, we'll try to keep that up. And lastly, we had one more come in uh, by Spencer Douglas, who said, I am so happy this exists. I really hope you guys keep going. Please don't stop doing them ever. So we appreciate that. And again, yeah, like I said, if you have a second to, to give us an iTunes review, that always helps us spread the word about the show. Going to start things off, as always, and kind of get you up to speed on any news in the in Brubaker Phillips world. I, I think it's been a relatively slow month for news, but I will hand things off to Bubba, and he can he can get you up to speed on that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, not much news, and you can see the that we're not posting a whole lot right now at uh, criminalcomic.blogspot.com. What news I have seen this month uh, has tended to focus on uh, artist uh, Sean Phillips, both uh, his work with Killer Be Killed and and with work uh, outside of his uh, br- collaboration with Ed Brubaker and even, even outside of uh, comic books. Uh, first of all, uh, Image Comics released its May solicitations, and um, it includes Killer Be Killed number nine. So since we're, we're going one straight month after another with uh, new issues and that seems to suggest to me that um, this second trade collection for those who, who do like to wait for the trades and I assume you know those who do are uh, uh, um, trade waiting in terms of the podcast as well uh, for those who, who are waiting my guess is that the second trade collection is going to be a little bit longer than the first one the first one collected um, the first uh, four issues this w- the, the second one will probably collect at least five and if you consider that uh, Brubaker and Phillips tend to produce about 10 comics a year so they're two uh, two months without um, any releases and if you also consider that they tend to to release the trade paperback after that one month gap my guess is that most of the trade collections for Killer Be Killed are going to run five issues but we shall see. Uh, the other thing that was uh, mentioned in Image Comics is a uh, is a reprint, a hardcover reprint with uh, art by Sean Phillips. Um, it's uh, called User, a story by Devin Grayson, art by John Bolton and Sean Phillips, uh, originally published as a three-part uh, Vertigo mini series in uh, 2001. Um, reading from the the solicitation, it says that User explores sexual identity and online role-playing. Um, in the text-based muds of the 90s, so uh, early tooth comic books set in um, published in the in 2001, set in the uh, the 1990s, uh, basically about um, about the the fluid and, and and changing identities in the world online in in cyberspace. The originally a three-part uh, miniseries, it's now being uh, published as a uh, hardcover. Uh, through Image Comics, and that will be out uh, out on May 17th. Um, the other uh, big news from Sean Phillips is, while we're waiting for, for more uh, comic books, is that he has uh, produced uh, artwork um, for yet another uh, Criterion Collection uh, home, home video release, uh, Blu-ray and DVD. 
Um, this is for the 1945 um, film Mildred Pier- Pierce, uh, Mildred Pierce, starring Joan Crawford, and um, it's described in the Criterion Collection web webpage or homepage as um, uh, as a melodrama that casts noirish shadows in a portrayal or a portrait of maternal sacrifice. Uh, from Hollywood master uh, director Michael Curtis. Uh, this is, I think, the fifth time that uh, Sean Phillips has uh, done the 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 art direction and the artwork uh, for a Criterion release. Um, he's previously done um, Blast of Silence, uh, Twelve Angry Men, uh, The Sweet Smell of Success, and on the waterfront so this is a little bit of a departure from those movies but still very much looking forward to it yeah and uh one more little piece of news that i just remembered speaking of sean phillips um there's another podcast that was just launched on march 1st um, of this year and it's called uh, i believe it's called the comic art podcast um you can find it at www.comicartpodcast.uk and I believe that their second episode is going to feature an interview with Sean Phillips. And I don't believe that's quite out yet. I think the first episode just dropped um, where I believe they interviewed Charlie Adlard. So um, that's something to keep an eye out. And I'm sure Bubba will uh, keep everybody posted on his uh, blog when that when that comes out. But I do know that Sean Phillips is going to be a scheduled guest on that podcast. So you know we're definitely excited about that here at The Undertow. Very cool. Yeah. And just uh, glancing at that um at that address, it's listed as the official podcast of the Lakes International Comic Art Festival out of uh, Lakes um, uh, Cumbria, uh, a, a non-metropolitan county in northwest England, Cumbria, uh, County Cumbria, where um, where I believe Sean Phillips resides, and he's had uh, quite a lot of work over the last few years, you know, curating. Uh, exhibits at the uh, Lakes uh, International Comic Art Festival, and he, you know he makes regular appearance there. So, yeah, that, that's very cool. I, I look forward to to catching him on that podcast, and yeah, I'll absolutely uh, uh, let everybody know uh, through our uh, our blog. Yeah, and that's something we'll definitely probably talk about on the next episode because I assume that that episode will be out by then. So we'll definitely give it a listen. But yeah. Keep posted on that. The official Lakes International Comic Art Festival podcast is a newly launched podcast. So I think we'll go ahead and dive into uh, Killer Be Killed number six, which is the main focus of our uh, episode tonight. Again, as always, there will be you know large spoilers for this issue, so definitely check out the issue before listening further to the podcast. Uh, the first page of the book starts out. We get they've been the style that they've been using a lot with the text and the border, and then images over to one side. This time we don't have a single image, but we have three regular size kind of comic images that are close-ups on the cops and Dylan and the standoff. So we pick up immediately where issue number five ended, um, which was interesting to see. And uh, so Dylan shoots, actually shoots the door next to the cops and scares them into running. It, it appeared at the end of number five that he may have been blowing away the cop himself, but it turns out that he, he went for the, the scare tactic instead. Um, threatened to have a bomb, and then eventually slipped out the back. And so he kind of escaped that escaped that situation in the best way he could. So then we see Dylan hailing a taxi as they're evacuating the building. And uh, he is smart enough to not go and not to not go to his actual residence, but he decides to call his always responsible drug dealer to pick him up. And this is Rex, who we've seen, I believe, once before in an earlier issue of Killer Be Killed. He he initially asks him about some opiates. Uh, Rex steers him against buying any opiates, and Dylan again mentions that he has to pick up his medication. And um, so it just brings up this this interesting point that he's buying what he calls medication from a drug dealer. So you know, is this a legit medical condition he's in? Is that just kind of slang for whatever drug he's into? We don't we don't really get an answer on that front. Yeah, and that's one of actually the the callbacks. I'm going to go through the the list in a in a moment or two, but it's uh, one of the callbacks to, um, uh, to a previous issue is we saw in issue number two that this uh, prescription, you know, quote unquote prescription and the other drugs that he lists, you know, you, you kind of rule them out. You wonder if it is a, um, if it is an actual uh, prescription and you wonder if, if it, to what degree it matters to the story, because I don't think it's just a throwaway line. And I had down um, in my notes the uh, RX from Rex. So. 
Yeah, and I mean, they really don't, when when he's talking to Rex, they don't really act like it's a joke. You know, he'll say like, you know, because like I said, Rex is seems like a pretty responsible guy for a drug dealer. I mean, like he says, I don't think you should be getting into opiates, you know, with your medical condition and stuff. Like he acts like he's privy to um, whatever Dylan's medical situation is. And they, they're not really talking like it's a joke, but he is a drug dealer in a, you know, in a stalker van. Um, but... He but is like providing... you say, a, a, a responsible dealer probably gets great reviews on Yelp. Rex and the taxi driver both have damn fine mustaches, that, you know that that are that are pretty impressive. And the cab driver brings up another excellent point that we were kind of prognosticating about before this issue came out. We see that the uh, Russian mob angle from a couple issues back is definitely still in play, and it it you know they they kind of deked the the reader a little bit and. Uh, issue number five and and talked about maybe that that had resolved itself kind of in between issues and it seemed in a very tidy way um but fortunately i think for for dramatic sake it, it does seem like that's going to be a big a big uh plot point moving forward that the cab driver has a russian accent and dylan's mentioning this to us in his narration um but he alludes to the fact that he didn't notice it at the time but in hindsight he realized hey i should have noticed that guy has a russian accent so he obviously has a tie to the mob from from two issues ago. So when in doubt, yes, trust Brubaker and Phillips. Uh, like I said, that was not. It seemed like that plot point may have been kind of slipped through the cracks, but no, it, it definitely has not, and it's going to be an integral part, I think, moving forward. And shortly after that, we're introduced to a new character, um, Officer Lily Sharp, and and this is yeah, I love this character. She's a she's a female detective introduced in this ish, issue. She mentions, or in some of the dialogue, it's it's alluded to that she used to be with the NYPD, but she's now with the Port Chester Police Department. So, you know, I'm curious, and I'm sure we may find out, you know, why she's been demoted or transferred or, or what's happened that she's not in the city anymore, but she's now in Port Chester. And if you recall, Port Chester was where Dylan's first victim was killed. Um, Mark McLaren, the... Uh, the the child molester that that Dylan initially took out on the street outside the bar, and there's just this really great image um, of Lily Sharp looking at McLaren's dead body in the snowy street in, in Portchester that that I thought was maybe one of the best ones of the whole issue. And I think this is the second time in this issue that careful readers are rewarded a page or or two or a, a scene or two or just a panel or two. Um, before before Dylan spells things out to you, you know, first, like you said, the the uh, cab driver with the Russian accent. If you're reading along and 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 you have the voices in your head, you know, the dialogue. He says, "Da, I pull over here," and you know that that I thought was a red flag. And then Dylan says in the narration, "It didn't occur to me until much later that my my cab driver had a Russian accent." And here we see. We see Lily investigating what could have been a random murder scene, but careful readers will know that it was uh, Dylan's first kill, and we get that confirmation the, um, just a couple pages afterwards. And yeah, we realize that she is is yet another character with you know kind of a damaged childhood. Um, they don't go into it in great detail, but um, they talk about how she hates government apathy. She's grew up in foster care, so she has some frustration towards the system um, that's, I think, fueling her drive as a police officer. Uh, and she she starts to put two and two together and is basically dismissed by um, all of her coworkers and her police chief about, you know, she starts to see this trend. She, she notices that the uh, dog killer and Mark were both shot with a, a thirty eight special revolver. So she starts to make the connection and is, you know, trying desperately to convince her police chief that, hey, we need to look into this more. This could be the same guy. But like I said, everybody else is pretty much dismissing her, and she's just single-handedly driven to to keep putting two and two together and investigating, you know, if there's if this is a trend, if this is a single killer. And she sees the uh, NYPD sketch of Dylan after he kills Barry Jameson, which happened in the last issue. And uh, Sharp goes to goes to ends up going to the press because her, like I said, her police chief won't listen to her. And there was a there was a pretty good piece of dialogue there between her and um, presumably someone who works at the newspaper there, and she's, and he says, uh, why are you so hot for this one, Lily? And she says, I don't know, maybe because he thinks he's the good guy, which I thought was a really, really good line. Yep, and, and I think that that comparison both between her motivations and, and her and her inference about his motivations, I think that combined with her biography really makes her an interesting contrast uh, to Dylan. Um, I think in part because 
you know, one of my favorite shows is is Castle, which tended to be more of the the humorous uh, murder of the week, you know, instead of a, a a very serious cop drama. But Castle on ABC, and then you you go through comics, and and you have a couple uh, of female detectives like Renee Montoya in Gotham Central, and then the central character in Greg Rucka's Black Magic, and and I'm reading right now a uh, book I'm going to mention in a uh, toward the end toward to, uh, with the recommendations, uh, Dead Inside, uh, from uh, Dark Horse Comics, and um, that too is about a a female detective, and it seems to be something that that you see an awful lot, you know, going all the way back to you know, say Silence of the Lambs tough female detective with somebody to with something to prove but also with you know vulnerability and that that sort of thing and i wondered if you know lily sharp with a name that might be a little on the nose but but is she a unique enough character and i would say you know with her background and her motivation i think she kind of serves as a kind of rebuke to to uh, dylan and his and his self-serving nihilism. You know, we were talking um, you know, about the the last issue and its focus on on fate and how you can't really get out from under, you know, the the hand you're dealt. And here we see someone who who was dealt apparently even a, an even worse hand than Dylan was in in his in his childhood, and. She chose to 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 do something good with it. She she chose to to li- live a productive, meaningful life and make a difference in in the lives of of those around her. Yeah, I thought she was a a very refreshing character. Um, kind of a you know this independent, confident female character that's um that we haven't really seen in in really recent Brubaker books. I definitely think it. I put a note that it harkened back to. Yeah, some of the the female detectives of Gotham Central definitely was was an obvious analogy. But yeah, it seems like she's going to be a big part of the story moving forward. And I and I like her her bit about apathy as well as is that you know you can see um, you can tell good writing when you don't hear the author's voice come out of every character's mouth. And I think the idea that 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 government can be a source of apathy can be a source of callousness i think is is a good sort of uh, corrective to the idea that that the government is the solution to every problem and in this case we see an apathetic government an apathetic government office when it comes to the most important job that they have you know at least domestically which is you know uh, solving and prosecuting murders <laughs> That that line that I read earlier too, I thought was so good because um, we spent so much time with Dylan in his head, and like I said, he's the protagonist of the story. That you do at times kind of forget like how insane this guy is, and so I thought that was a good line where she just says, you know, maybe because he thinks he's the good guy, and you know, it really kind of it just kind of reinforces that that um, hey, what he's doing is really really out there. And uh, she's on to him, so it just it shifted the dynamic, I think, with a pretty simple line. But um, I thought it was an important one. Yeah, and um, this kind of uh, background information on her and this this view, you know, gives gives us a minute or two away from uh, from from Dylan's psychopathic point of view. But it also raises the question: How does Dylan know all this about um, uh, about Lily Sharp? You know, uh, it's not one of those hard cuts to to Lily without any sort of explanation, without any sort of narration, or or with her own narration, which is what you'd see probably in, more in the um, the criminal comics and in Fatale and and in um, the Fade Out. Here we're still having uh, Dylan's narration, which unless it's unless it's a, either a red herring or or just a stylistic choice on Brubaker's part and not and not a clue into a bigger mystery, it does raise the question of, of or it does suggest that Dylan is going to have an opportunity to find out 
about his uh, pursuers, about his um, his antagonists. And here we're here we're getting into I think a situation much like like the 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 classic movie The Fugitive, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, and in this case we're going to be riding along with the the fugitive character, the in this case Dylan, but we will have much more much more doubts and much greater doubts about whether he is he he can really genuinely be considered a hero at all. You know, with this narration, yeah, where is this coming from? Like you said, is it sty- is it just a stylistic decision, just kind of a different approach to the story, or does it mean something that we're hearing everything from this future this future Dylan talking about this story in the past, and we don't know where it's coming from exactly. So um, I think that's a big question. That That's an interesting point. So the story, after we after we find out about Lily Sharp, it cuts back to, uh, back to Dylan, who's now in bed with Daisy. Um, he's had this kind of weekend of sex with Daisy, his ex-girlfriend, after the adrenaline high of almost being caught at the cafe. So he... You know, he escapes from the cafe, takes his taxi ride, Rex gives him a ride, and then um, eventually he, he meets back up with Daisy and kind of rekindles that relationship as just, you know, feeling on top of the world. And it and it was awesome, according to Dylan. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Quote, awesome. <laughs> yes. Uh, they had some sci-fi. They had some sci-fi movies in the middle of the night. They uh, looked like they had a bong sitting there next to them. So it was a full weekend of, of all sorts of activities. Then it cuts to the two of them in the subway at the end, and there's this really, really nice shot as far as the artwork of uh, of the subway. There's these orange reflections on the tile floor and these orange streaks from the speeding train going by and Dylan and Daisy walking. And then, of course, the rug is pulled out from Dylan when he sees the headline and his picture on the front page of the paper um, in the subway, and he knows that you know he's fully entered the wanted man phase. And then we have the the last page where he's not the only one looking at that. Uh, and then that's a great transition is, you know, you turn the page and um, you're not actually sure who's the one holding the, uh, the the newspaper. But you realize he's not the only one looking at the uh, at the uh, Daily News uh, cover. You know, Dylan seeing the headline in the subway, that would have been a, a nice way to end the comic. And so that was almost kind of a fake ending. And then we get the, that last page, that little epilogue where um, the Russian mob angle comes back in, and we find out uh, Nico was the Russian mobster that Dylan shot and killed. I can't remember if that name was was introduced before this issue or not, but I wrote it down. I know it was in this issue. And uh, we're introduced to another Russian mob character named Carl, who's uh, going to start hunting for Dylan. And he's got yet another quality mustache and uh, a definite Phil Brodsky haircut, I noticed. And it, it all makes it, you know, we have the modern technology, you know, the, the cell phones and Facebook, but it does make it feel like um, one of those, uh, well, like the, the, the mustachioed uh, vigilante film, you know, uh, uh, Bronson in, uh, in Death Wish, you know, in the, uh, the 70s when, when New York was quite infamously just going to hell, so... And it's just, it's really, really cool how all these storylines are coming together, you know, and this issue, it seems like a nice bridge leading to to big, momentous events because we, you know, we get the Lily Sharp angle and then the Russian mob thing is back in full force and they're actively going to start hunting for Dylan based on the dialogue at the end. Um, And then Dylan's just kind of off the rails and all over the place, so you never know where that's headed. But all these storylines are starting to converge and so it seems like, like big things are on the horizon. Yep, they're they're all converging. We're we're being introduced to a a, a true whether whether Dylan's a, a a hero or not, and I would say not. He's definitely the protagonist. So we're introduced to a true an, antagonist, and really to two of them, to to Lily Sharp and to the Russian mobster um, Carl. And, and with those introductions, they're not coming out of the blue. They're tying back to pretty much the entire comic. You know, uh, um, we we see Daisy again, and she was had a brief scene in issue one, a, a more important scene in issue five. You know, if you look through um, issue number two, you have uh, the first mention of the the prescription uh, from the drug dealer Rex. You have the um, the discovery of the child sex ring, not just the one child molester, but a full full on um, criminal conspiracy. That revelation in issue three, and we see where who who made that connection. 
we we had the Russians in issue four there back. We had the dog poisoner and uh, Jameson both killed in issue five and, and both of those um, come back to, to matter in this story. And, you know, ultimately we have that huge uh, cliffhanger um, at the end of issue five and, and we get the resolution immediately. You know, I was I was wondering if it was going to take take a while, whether, you know, the tension was going to be drawn out over maybe even two months and we get the resolution pretty quickly. And then you have the details of the investigation itself. And it's taking some notes after reading this issue. Um, a thought struck my mind. I went back and, and reread uh, the, the key information, the forensics information um, from from these murders that um, that Detective Sharp has been been bringing out is that, you know, first you have the child molester, Mark, who was shot uh, with um, Dylan's father's old uh, 38, which uh, a uh, caliber, which is rare now, but but common in the past. Again, going back to the old vigilante uh, movies, Mark was killed by uh, Dylan's dad's 38, but the uh, bullet pancaked and was fragmented. Next, the uh, the Russian mobster Nico um, from the strip club, he was killed by the same 38, and that bullet also fragmented. But we have eyewitnesses, the uh, the the strippers from the strip club, um, identifying the killer as a man in a in a red ski mask. The third kill was the dog killer, again the same 38, uh, and then the the fourth kill was was Jameson with a shotgun but then you have again eyewitnesses in this case the uh, the two police officers uh, reporting that he was wear that the killer was wearing a, a red bandana um, detail wasn't quite right but again the red mask and that's what allowed um, uh, allowed detective sharp to make that connection even though it was a different gun um, it was the same same red mask it was the same mo of tar- of targeting a uh, a victim who you know kind of had it coming you know again going back to to her inference about his motivation his thinking that he's a good guy um but the the thing that came to mind was the bullets being traceable the first three kills were all with dylan's dad's 38 the first one the bullet fragmented. The second one, the bullet fragmented. The third one, the bullet evidently did not fragment. Now, because that was the only one of the three that didn't fragment, there's no way that that forensics could make a match from against that bullet from that bullet against either of the other two. So all you have to go by is the caliber. Caliber is the same, uh, a, ra- a relatively rare caliber. In this day and age, but um, Detective Sharp's boss mentions that the 38 caliber was much, much more common uh, decades past. We know where Dylan got the gun, that it was his dad's old gun. We know that Dylan's uh, dad at least once drew artwork that inc- that included um, the the demon that, that cursed Dylan. If the demon is – particularly if the demon is this um, real and objective thing despite Dylan's um, um, you know, illegal medication, is it possible that, that Dylan's dad had the same, same sort of arrangement, that he was under the same curse, that he had to, to, to kill bad guys once a month as well? If he did, did he use that 38? And if he used that 38, were any of the bullets recovered? And could could any sort of matches be made from what would would up to this point be uh, um, unsolved cold cases? And I think that's that's a definite possibility, considering how how often the details really do matter in, in a Brubaker book. Yeah, and the next issue um, is which is number seven is um, supposed to be all from Kira's point of view. Uh, Kira wasn't in this this issue at all. But the next issue uh, on the cover, we have Kira with purple hair and a shotgun. So uh, that's enough for me to be pumped to read the next issue and to see where that goes because yep. I really don't know. I don't know how that's going to happen in in you know twenty odd pages. That's a big jump. Yep. And if it's Dylan's shotgun, does she find? Is she yet another person who finds out what he's been up to? Yeah. So she may be becoming privy to what's going on. We don't know. Yep. Um, but but before we look ahead, we do have one more thing to talk about about this issue. And, and while we're cracking up open 
my weirdest conspiracy theories. I might as well finally, finally get around to cracking open uh, the beverage for tonight. It's um, Harp uh, Lager from the uh, the Brewers at Guinness. So nice. Yes, yeah. I've, I've been working my way through all the Guinness brands. So yeah, you can't go wrong with the basics. That's absolutely right. So um, the the artwork here. One thing I did notice is, like you like you said, the very first page has this sort of splash, splash page layout, but three panels instead of a, a single panel. And I must say that that second panel where you see um, both cops and you are looking down the wrong end of the barrel of, of the first cop's um, uh, sidearm, that is probably my favorite panel of the entire book. That's just, you know. You can even catch the the person working at the cafe counter behind them, in between their shoulders, which is yeah, it's just a great shot. Yep, yep. Uh, but there aren't there aren't a lot of one page splash or uh, full page uh, splashes. I think I believe the only one is of a young uh, Lily Sharp in uh, foster care. The the most interesting thing of the artwork it's it's not my favorite panel, but the most interesting. Uh, panel is on the penultimate page, the next to last page. You mentioned uh, Dylan at the newsstand, um, or Dylan in the uh, subway station, and then then at the newsstand. And I was afraid you were going to to mention this before I had a chance to. Apparently, you did not. Look at the far left of this page uh, in the newsstand, right as as the as that panel goes into the basically the fold of the page. Oh, I see exactly what you're talking about now. I know I missed it the first time reading it. Yes. Uh, what we're talking about is the deadly hands uh, uh, of criminal uh, issue. The, the deadly hands, it's um, the uh, Fang, the Kung Fu Werewolf comic book. Yeah, what a nice touch. It, it, it's a nice touch, but it raises all kinds of questions. <laughs> it, on the one hand, if... If this is, you know, if if this is the same universe as the the, the criminal stories, it's Deadly Hands. Has it some, has it been has it experienced a revival in the last few years of the this universe? You know, in terms of maybe maybe movie adaptations, that sort of thing, where you would find a uh, a comic magazine um, there on the newsstands for it. Um, are we looking at another hint of of a larger um, interconnected universe in terms of uh, uh, Bruce Baker and Phillips uh, create their own works because um, uh, this is an, another minor thing. But if you look at the the first magazine-sized criminal, the uh, the Savage Sword one with Zangar the Barbarian. If you look at the magazine edition, you will see that um, that the the credits page says that the uh, that the character Zangar was created by Alfred Ravenscroft, who is the the kind of uh, uh, Robert E. Howard type or Lovecraftian Howard type or Lovecraftian type, uh, the pulp writer in Fatal in the early 20th century uh, in Fatal. So, if Fatal and Criminal are in the same universe, and Criminal and and um, Kill or Be Killed, is there any connection between the Demon and Kill or Be Killed and the um, the the kind of Lovecraftian horrors um, in in uh, Fatal. Are we supposed to infer that there are connections, or are they ju- these just uh, Easter eggs for careful readers? You know, at this point, it's it's a matter of you be the judge. And and if not if nothing comes from it, just being able to to catch the Easter eggs on a first glance. Uh, as you said, the very first issue, um, it looked like Dylan was taking out. Um, two characters from Criminal, <laughs> in terms of. Oh the yeah, I forgot parts. about that. I forgot yeah. about that theory as well. I, I think it's a, a, a fun little nod to the uh, to the longtime readers. Well, what else did you have, Bubba, on this issue before we uh, shift into recommendations? Uh, that that I think was it. Um, except, yeah, this is very much a monthly read. Um, if anybody happens to be listening to this podcast and. Uh, and is uh, trade waiting? I think you do get a much different experience if you're, you know, reading it in in 25, 30 page chunks, and then having to wait uh, a month to see what happens next. I think that was one of the reasons why I expected the the resolution to last month's cliffhanger to take longer, because you know when you do put it in the trade, you don't have to wait long for the uh, cliffhanger to be resolved. 
but I thought this was a very um, enjoyable issue, you know, just in terms of ratcheting up the tension, introducing uh, new antagonists, plural. Um, and if you're going to have that well-crafted um, issue, you know, from previously, where you start essentially with a cliffhanger, you go back in time to see how you got to that that to that point, and then advance it just one frame to to leave the reader wanting more. I think this is a good way to to pick up with it. So yeah, and speaking of the antagonist, just in case anyone was wondering, the uh, Russian mobster is definitely Carl with a K, uh, not Carl with a C. So that. You know that's a subtle difference there, but yeah, Carl with the C would be more of the uh, the the kind of um, Giants fan from Aqua Teen Hunger Force, I think. Who also yeah, or, who also uh, has I, a very rocking mustache. It, it should go with it shouldn't go without saying. Yeah, and I yeah, if I see Carl with a C, I always picture uh, Car- Carl from The Simpsons, Lenny and Carl. You know, Homer's two yep. uh, compadres. So yeah, this is Carl with a K, which gives you a you know a little bit different feel for the character. Duh. Um, Duh. But yeah, so we'll we'll shift gears here. I think we're gonna wrap things up there on Killer Be Killed, uh, number six, and, and shift gears and do our do our recommendations for the month. Um, I guess I'll kick things off here. I've got a film recommendation, and then I think Bubba's gonna talk comics mostly. Uh, so my recommendation is a, a 2005 film by John Hillcoat called The Proposition. Very, very good film that I had seen when it initially came out and then revisited it recently. Um, it's a, an Australian Western set in the outback in the 1880s. Uh, like I said, it's directed by John Hillcoat, who uh, you may you may know from. He, he made The Road recently. He made Lawless or a couple of his other movies, uh, both good films as well. Um, the screenplay is written by uh, musician Nick Cave, who also does the soundtrack. And uh, it stars Guy Pearce, Ray Winstone, Emily Watson, Danny Houston. It's a, it's a big ensemble cast. It's just got this this great noir setup uh, that that immediately hooks you. And this isn't spoiling anything. It's in the first, you know, just couple minutes of the film. Um, we've got three brothers who are criminals, and uh, two of the brothers, the two younger brothers, are captured by the the constable played by Ray Winstone, and. Uh, he makes a deal with with Charlie, the middle brother. He says he has nine days to uh, kill his oldest brother Arthur, or his youngest brother Mikey, who's kind of innocent and naive of the world, will be hung on Christmas. So it's just this this immediate hook that that is just great and gets you sunk into the film. And you know, it's kind of a film about family and colonization in Australia. Um, I did read that it's been commended for uh, being very accurate in its depiction of indigenous Australian culture of the late nineteenth century. Um, it's definitely, you know, it's it's somewhat an unsettling film. It's, you know, unflinchingly violent, so it's really not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's brutal at, at pretty much every turn, but it's just got this dry, dusty, scorched feeling that you, you get from, from the first from the first frame to the end. Um, highly recommended. Uh, the score is fantastic. Nick Cave and uh, his longtime collaborator Warren Ellis do the score. Uh, not to be confused with the the comics writer Warren Ellis. This is Warren Ellis of the Bad Seeds, who is in Nick Cave's band. He's a violin player, so his this haunting violin is the the primary driver of the music throughout the film. And um, yeah, highly recommended if you like westerns. Uh, it's you know it's kind of a western, kind of a noir. Just this great ensemble cast, brutally violent, um, but a really original film. And and yeah, highly recommend it. Very cool. I had not heard of it at all at all until you brought it up. So, yeah, take it away, Bubba, with your uh, your recommendations this month. All right. Well, so um, I've been reading a few comics uh, from uh, from Dark Horse uh, lately, and uh, Dark Horse Comics Comics uh, celebrated their 30th anniversary this year, just like Image is celebrating their uh, 25th. Or they celebrated their 30th last year, just as Images is celebrating its uh, 30th anniversary this year. Um, and I've Dark Horse, I think, you know, is one of the better publishers. Um, and, it, you know, it straddles the the um, the line between uh, licensed comics, most no- notably Star Wars for a very long time, um, but also Alien, Predator, and you know, a few others. And then uh, creator-owned comics, um, which I believe Hellboy has been uh, through dark th- published through Dark Horse the entire time. Um, I've been reading 
uh, uh, three titles, um, two of them creator-owned, Black Hammer, um, which is one of the uh, most recent books from Jeff Lemire. Um, it's uh, basically about uh, these golden and silver age comic book heroes that after this great, you know, quote unquote crisis, like the, the, the sort of uh, crisis, you know, that you would see in DC comics every few, few years, they find themselves banished to this kind of small town purgatory. This, this small town, um, almost like a Twilight Zone type little uh, farming community where they can't leave. And um, it's a bit of a slow burner, but but you know, I, I have enjoyed every issue that has since come out. And the other creator-owned book is uh, Dead Inside, by uh, uh, written by uh, John Arcudi, um, about a uh, a murder investigation uh, behind behind bars in prison. Um, and yeah, I'd mentioned earlier all the, the female detectives. Uh, this one, uh, includes another one, uh, detective Linda Caruso, um, who doesn't want to be, uh, in the, uh, jail crimes division of the sheriff's office. Um, but it, she, uh, is investigating a, uh, a, a murder, a double murder, murder, a murder, suicide, that is originally treated as a murder suicide and and is actually covering up uh, or is uh, pointing to a much much bigger plot. Both of these I've enjoyed thoroughly. Black Hammer's first uh, trade paperback collecting the first 6 issues is coming out uh, later this month, coming out in March. Um and is worth checking out. Uh, Dead Inside is just a uh, 5 issue miniseries um that it's about at the halfway point. In both cases I've been enjoying it, but haven't quite reached the point where I want to strongly recommend either of them. Uh, for one thing, the the artwork doesn't quite click with me. It's a little little fussy. Uh, but then the writing has been solid characterization. But you know, there's this line or this phrase that uh, I think Roger Ebert coined called fridge logic. You know, when you're getting a, a snack in the middle of the night after seeing a movie, uh, where you you realize one little plot hang up throws the whole um, throws the whole uh, uh, plot out of whack, one little um, loophole. And in this case, I, in, in both of these cases, I'm I'm not quite sure that the writing adds up. Uh, there are details in the premise that we'll see. Uh, once these wrap up, if they're worth recommending, I will definitely do so. In the meantime, the book I do want to recommend and would actually quite strongly is, is one of the licensed works. It's uh, Conan the Slayer. Um it's it's you know Conan the Barbarian, the Sumerian, um, created by uh, Robert E. H Howard, and and is a bit of a departure from the crime comics of Brubaker and Phillips. But at the same time, if you like the uh, the Savage Sword one shot, you should definitely uh, at least check out the occasional uh, Conan comic book. Uh, this one, um, it's uh, uh, the first uh, six issues of this new series. Um, by writer Cullen Bunn and artist Sergio Davila, and I hope I uh, haven't um, butchered either either name uh, too hardly, too too excessively. Uh, the first six issues form a single story arc and have just been are are be just being collected, and will be uh, released on a trade paperback. It looks like in April, um, and it's called Blood in His Wake. So Conan the Slayer, Volume 1, Blood in His Wake. And I will say that if you find blood in your wake, uh, you should see your doctor immediately. But it's um, the first arc in this new series, but this new series kind of continues what's what's gone before. If you look on the inside cover, you'll find that it's um, – the inside cover of number one is that it's number 138 in a series. So every so often they, they reset the Conan books. You know, reset the titles, go with the number one, but they're continuing the same story. They're not resetting the continuity. Um, it's uh, I I know that um, the Uncle Scrooge and the Disney comics that IDW is reprinting, they're doing the same thing. If you you can find the secondary number, so if you you wanted to to be reading, um, or if you have been reading. Uh, the same comic book for years you can you can keep up and it's that's actually the sort of thing i would have loved to have seen in the uh, brubaker and phillips works you know they've produced you know dozens and dozens of comic books at this point and would love to see on the inside cover you know number 70 
of the Brubaker and Phillips uh, series. These Conan books, also any of the uh, the Dark Horse books for uh, Robert E. Howard, um, you know, a pulp writer who who you know died before his time and committed suicide. He was a, a, a actually pen pals with uh, another now famous uh, pulp writer, uh, Lovecraft. Um, at the end of every Robert E. Howard uh, issue, they have a, uh, a comic called The Adventures of Two-Gun Bob, True Stories from the Life of Robert E. Howard. It's a, a husband and wife team, Jim and Ruth Keegan, that um, do these, these short um, strips basically summarizing an event, a chapter um, in, uh, in Robert E. Howard's life. You know, from from correspondence, from interviews, um, from from biographies, piecing together his life. And I believe when they finally finish their entire, you know, they put together however many hundred that that they plan on doing, they're going to be releasing all of these strips in a single collection. And that that would be a fun read in and of itself. And that's another thing I'd love to see in Brubaker Phillips is you know something like. Um, Frank Kafka, Private Eye, in the back of every Brubaker and Phillips comic, whether it's you know, Fatal, The Fade Out, Killer Be Killed, give give the longtime readers a a, a continuity there that <clears throat> that the new readers um, don't uh, uh, don't really have. But the the reason to get these books is is the story on the inside, and you know I would not consider myself a Conan aficionado, you know, not a diehard fan. But I have read, you know, some of the prose uh, stories that were released in uh, three volumes uh, from I think Del Rey Publisher. Uh, that's that's pretty much released all of um, Robert E. Howard's stories in their original format in their original form because they've been um, since been butchered in you know mass market paperbacks. Uh, but in addition to reading the prose, I kind of got got uh, caught up in. Um, the anthology series, Robert E. Howard's Savage Sword, a uh, series that, that has since run its course. And, and one of those a- issues actually uh, have a, has a uh, Conan short story uh, with uh, artwork by Sean Phillips. Um, and you know the, the comic reprints of basically the definitive pair of Conan comic, comic book creators, uh, Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith, writer Roy Thomas, artist Barry Windsor Smith. Um, there are two of those black and white, you know, phone book sized inexpensive uh, archives I have of theirs uh, from uh, Savage Sword of Conan. And then there's uh, the two recolored hardcovers, the Barry Windsor Smith archives. And, you know, it doesn't take long. You don't have to read too many Conan stories to see what the appeal is. You know, it, it's, you know, it, it takes you into another world or more, more precisely into an older world where, um, where it's it's not quite as uh, as black and white and good versus evil as say the uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know the Tolkien works. The comparison would be that if Tolkien's um, Aragorn is is a traditional cowboy, you know, if he, if he's a kind of a John Wayne of the fantasy genre, Conan. Is the anti-hero cowboy? He's more of the Clint Eastwood of the same genre, and um, you know, you, like with every other licensed um, character or, or or licensed universe, you know, there is a limit uh, to how many stories you can you can read of the same character and still get any anything out of it. But I, I recommend this one. I recommend this arc, uh, Blood in His Wake. It's, it's evocative writing. It, it sounds like it's the same voice as Robert E. Howard. The the artwork is nice and brutal, as you would expect, you know, particularly in the, the large-scale battles. Um, it's an episodic kind of tale where you get a, get a lot of story in each issue, but it tells an overarching arc, uh, an o- overarching story arc. And in this case, when you're when you're you know you're confident that the uh, the title character is going to be alive by the end, there's always the question of of the people around him, the the tribe he has befriended, you know, and the family struggles, the the sibling rivalry, and the 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 um, patricidal hatred and that sort of thing. You know, who's going to survive that that sort of tension? And it's um, 
you know, sword and sorcery in both parts of the are, are written and drawn very well. And there's this um, subtle backstory. There's this this subtlety going on that I don't want to spoil, but is evident even in the the very uh, in the title blood in his wake it's evident in the first couple pages of that first issue and then it's it's resolved very nicely um in the very last couple pages of issue number six and maybe not even resolved uh, uh ultimately resolved we might see more of um uh, of this uh, kind of uh, story playing uh, subtly in the background so yeah, the only thing that remains would be to to read the summary of the uh, the trade paperback is uh, alone on the brink of death and with nothing but his sword, Conan of Samaria finds refuge in a camp of Kozaki raiders. As Conan's wounds heal, he gains acceptance into the clan, only to discover that mortal danger is closer than ever, which tells you all you need to know without telling you much at all. Yeah, nice, great recommendation, Bubba. Conan the Slayer. Uh, and the proposition is is going to be our monthly recommendations for uh, our March episode. So again, we want to we appreciate you guys joining us again. Um, you can find all our episodes undertow.podbean.com or on iTunes at Undertow Podcast on Twitter. Leave us an iTunes review; we'd appreciate it, and we'll try to read some of those out on air, like we did this evening. Anyway, we shall be back for. Uh, Kill or Be Killed number seven in a, in a few weeks' time, but we appreciate you guys listening and uh, helping us spread the word on the show. Thank you, Bubba. A pleasure as always. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and sign off, and we will see you on down the road, folks. Thanks.